our scripture comes from today, starting in verse 10. Hear the Lord's word. Listen to our God's teaching, Isaiah says, people of Gomorrah. What should I think about all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm fed up with entirely burned offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't want the blood of bulls, lambs, and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this from you, this trampling of my temple's courts? Stop bringing worthless offerings. Your incense repulses me, new moon, Sabbath, and the calling of an assembly. I can't stand wickedness with celebration. Wash, be clean, remove your ugly deeds from my sight, put an end to such evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words in my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In his book, Toxic Charity, Robert Lupton wrote this in 2011. And I want to share this story with you as we begin this morning, as we think specifically in this series about is our helping truly helping um, at kind of some of the kind of thesis of this series, which is when helping hurts. Um, Lupton was doing a lot of work in inner city Atlanta, and, and this, is, this story comes out of his experience there. He says, that's why Christmas Eve of 81, I celebrated the season as a newcomer to this urban neighborhood, sipping coffee with one of my new neighbors. Bare floors were swept clean, and clutter was picked up. The smell of pine saw hung in the air. Front windows reflected the light from two plastic candles. A small artificial tree on a corner table blinked with a single strand of colored lights. The children, antsy with anticipation, paced from window to window, waiting for Santa's helpers to arrive. When the knock finally came on their front door, their mom greeted the visitors, a well-dressed family with young children, and invited them to step inside. A nervous smile concealed her embarrassment as she graciously accepted armfuls of neatly wrapped gifts. In the commotion, No one noticed that the children's father had quietly slipped out of the room. No one but their mom. Not until the guests were gone and the children had torn through the wrappings to the treasures inside did one of the little ones ask where their father was. No one questioned the mother's response that he had to go to the store. But after organizing these kinds of Christmas charity events for years, I was witnessing a side I had never noticed before. How a father is emasculated in his own home in front of his wife and children for not being able to provide presents for his family. How a wife is forced to shield her children from their father's embarrassment. How children get the message that the good stuff comes from rich people out there, and it is free. Only after becoming a neighbor was I able to see what we had done. Christmas Eve in that living room, I became painfully aware that not all charity is good charity. Even the most kind-hearted, rightly motivated giving. As innocent as giving Christmas toys to needy children can exact an unintended toll on a parent's dignity. Inadvertently, I had done just that. Not just this time, 
but many times. This kind of charity has to stop, I vowed. The cost was just too great, the emotional pain too severe. There had to be a better way. Lupton uncovers in that small story the cost of the type of charity that he's going to talk about in his book. And I wonder if you've ever thought about charity or, or good works or helping folks out in that way. There is no doubt that the efforts of everyone involved in his story there are well-meaning, well-intentioned. But sometimes we need to check what we are doing against those intentions. So this morning I want to talk about two problems that happen when helping starts to hurt. The first one is this, and, and, and it gets called this in, in, in the book, When Helping Hurts, is the God complex of the materially wealthy. Now, you might say God complex, that sounds pretty extreme. Like, why would we say that about someone having a God complex? But what they go on and the authors describe in that book is that what happens sometimes when we help folks who are in need is a subtle sense of superiority that creeps in. The idea is that I have achieved wealth for myself and therefore I can choose what is best for low income people. There's that sense that in some situations that those who have earned or have achieved a certain amount have the expertise to bring in and to tell people about how to live their lives. That subtle sense of superiority. And the questions that we need to ask ourselves when it comes to being honest about why we serve people who are poor is what truly motivates us to serve the poor. Do we really love poor people and want to serve? Or are there other motives when we get really honest with ourselves? Do we serve because it makes me feel good? Or I want to leave a legacy? Or I want to know if my life made a difference? Sometimes we can see it in the expectations that we have from how people respond to our giving. Do we expect gratitude from the people that we are serving? And do we expect it in a certain way so that when we don't receive that thank you or we don't receive the abundant blessings of someone who we're helping, that we in turn don't really want to serve as much or we feel like someone is mooching off of us or something like that? In this text in Isaiah, the problem of the people's worship, and the prophets often go after this, right? The problem of the people's worship is not their worship. Isaiah is not chiding the people for offering a sacrifice in the wrong way, right? They were, they were properly killing the bull, bringing it to the altar. That wasn't the issue. The problem is their heart condition with which they're coming it is going through the motions with the thought that those very acts are the things that will appease God. And God says this kind of funny thing. He says, I'm fed up with the entirely burned offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. In other words, I'm fed up with you feeding me, is what God is saying. I don't need these sacrifices if they are not accompanied by the justice that I'm asking for. And so that's the first problem that we encounter is this, this God complex of the materially wealthy when we try to help. Now, we could go more in depth about how that happens and the ways in which it happens, but the main issue, right, is that it puts people not on an equal playing field. 
And problem two that the authors of One Helping Hurts describe is the feelings of inferiority then of the materially poor. Like that opening story of the family bringing Christmas presents on Christmas Eve uh, and the father escaping out the back door, the God complex of the wealthy in turn can shame those who are materially poor, which results in kind of a vicious cycle. So those who, are, those who have means go and help those who don't. Those who don't feel shamed and start to become dependent, and the cycle keeps going, right? And sometimes it gets even worse. One example of this cycle, uh, Robert Lupton in his book Toxic Charity talks about aid to Africa. And at the time of that publishing in 2011, he talks about that in the previous 50 years, over $1 trillion of aid had been given to the continent of Africa. And at that time, each country in Africa's per capita income was worse than it was in the 1970s. So $1 trillion of aid had poured in. And yet, as a whole, the continent was poorer than it was before, right? Some, something is happening with some form of a cycle there. Dependency gets created with kind of unchecked aid. So in, in those kind of cases, maybe the food pantry or clothing closet line or soup kitchen gets longer and longer. And in those spaces, the poor have their dignity taken from them and grow more and more dependent. Poverty, in one definition, is simply the lack of ability to make one's own choices the lack of ability to make one's own choices. Notice in Isaiah what is said about justice at the end of his, at the end of this passage today. He tells them, put an end to evil, learn to do good. Put an end to such evil and learn to do good. This implies a process about learning what it actually takes to care for those who are poor. Charity is not what Isaiah asks for in this text. No, the verbs get really specific when he says, seek justice, help the oppressed. And then he says, do what? Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. He's given really specific verbs there. It's not just kind of help those on the margin. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. The orphan and the widow had no rights in this society. So they needed protection they needed advocacy. So this is the issue that we encounter. Maybe we're not caring for the most vulnerable among us in the best ways. None of us would argue that our government's welfare program leaves something to be desired, regardless of which side of the aisle that you fall upon. We know that our society should provide everyone with some form of safety net. We also recognize, though, that there is a problem when dependence gets created. And churches and mission organizations and nonprofits have also created in that system a learned dependence. Why? Well, it's probably started from a really good heart of wanting to help people. But subtly there is something in us too that likes to feel depended on. And this is that first problem of that God complex that we talked about. So the uncomfortable question that we are forced to ask when we are dealing with the title of this series is, so is our helping, is our helping truly helping? I went to a small Christian college. 
and my undergraduate university had developed what I would describe as a short-term missions juggernaut, okay? So it, we had a school of maybe 2,500 students, and during spring break at its peak, we sent out 40 different short-term mission teams from our school to go and serve in places all around the world. And in the youth group world of the early 2000s, going on a mission trip, especially a foreign mission trip, was the pinnacle of holiness. So naturally, a college filled with these types of kids who needed to prove that they were at the pinnacle of holiness would develop this type of short-term missions program. And the man who founded these trips was an extremely faithful professor. He had served as a missionary in Africa for over a decade before coming back to the university to teach missions and theology. And in 2006, my junior year at our annual religion department symposium, this professor questioned the entire spring break missions program that he had helped to create. I remember being in awe of his honesty in that space. You could hear a pin drop because it sounded like the creator of Frankenstein was talking. At the end, he literally said, I've created a monster. Now, why? He, well, what, what Dr. Lowe was describing in that space was the problem of the total cost of these trips. I mean, the cost of 40 different teams flying overseas and all of the costs associated the lack of the long-term sustainability that would happen in some of the spaces, the fact that the manual labor or the church programming could be done better by local people on the ground to be more effective for the long-term, all of those ways. And in fact, when I tried to look up that program this week, it was nowhere to be found on the internet. And when I tried to search for the symposium of 2006, maybe before we put every note of everything on the internet, I couldn't find it. But what I know is that that program literally doesn't exist in quite the same way anymore. And now you might say, but isn't that what? There were 40 different teams of students going to serve people abroad. Why in the world would you stop such a thing? But herein lies some of the questions that we're asking right? Because he started to say, what is the impact total of this work that we're doing? Now, while some of the students may describe it as life-changing and it, and it shifted their course of how they think about their lives and how they think about their own privilege in the world and everything like that, he started to question what the cost was in that space. And the challenge of this series is found right here at that space where you say, oh gosh, like things that were really good are starting to get called into question. We want to do good and to help people, but our helping is not always helping. And sometimes, mostly unintentionally, it hurts the people we're trying to help. And what I want us to hear, and where we'll get as we go through this, is that in turn, it actually hurts us too, those who are helping. It doesn't just hurt. It doesn't just hurt those who are the ones being helped. It actually hurts the helper as well. So we're not going to solve that today right here in this space. I'm sorry if you were looking for the golden ticket. Uh, but we can pray for an openness and a lack of defensiveness when thinking about the ways that we individually and as a church community try to help. What do I mean by an openness and a lack of defensiveness? I mean that we just are able to lay ourselves bare before God and say, God, help me examine my own motives for why I have a desire to help. It's not a measure of guilt-seeking or anything like that. But God, help me examine my own motives. And then, God, help me to see 
over time and with conversation, maybe the unintentional harm that has been done with some of the ministries or things I've been a part of. That does not mean, that does not mean that all ministries of charity and, give, and giving things away and providing for people are necessarily bad or evil or anything like that. But it's more that as we talk through this, we're going to hit some places that might personally, where we have to say, okay, how should I respond? What should I do about that? And I hope in those places that rather than closing up, we might be open to how the Holy Spirit would guide us. Personally, as a church, as a broader faith community in the world, about how God is calling us to respond. I'll let you pray with me. Holy God, I recognize that in talking about these things, we hit a certain level of discomfort. Because God, something in us wants to just make sure that we can try to, frankly, as John Wesley said, do all the good we can. And so for a lot of us, that just means making sure that we keep mission programs and everything afloat um, and make sure that they have the adequate means both of people and money to do the work that they're called to do, whether that means a ministry through the church or a nonprofit in town or in, in, in the entire world. And God, we thank you that at the same time you gave us that spirit of compassion, you also give us brains to reason. And Lord, I ask that you would give us brains to reason along with these hearts of compassion so that the most good might get done for your kingdom's sake, and for those who are the most poor and vulnerable in our midst and in your world. Lord, the people that we know that you love and that you call us to love. So God, help us to respond in faithfulness, in courage, and in love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.